It's Wednesday, May 20th, and on this week of Race Capital, we're discussing Governor Northam using juked-up data to validate Virginia's reopening. Then we replay the response from statewide advocates to the governor valuing businesses over workers. And finally, we hear from author and historian Dr. Julian Hader to provide historic context to this moment. But up first, we welcome the Black woman, journalist, and Shiro, who broke the story on Virginia's testing and unpacks these wonky numbers the nation can't stop discussing. Stay tuned and thanks for listening to Race Capital. Okay, and today we have Mel Lenore here from Richmond Times Dispatch, um, who really uncovered a lot of the data that folks are talking about nationally and here in Virginia, Rio really questioning. Thank you so much, Mel, for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. And um, so tell us what's going on with the data and the testing with Virginia. So, so the story of last week was just that Virginia um, officials were combining two different types of tests and the testing numbers that they were releasing every day. Testing is one of those issues that everyone's really interested in because it's kind of the only way right now for us to move forward um, amid COVID-19 before there is a vaccine and before there is treatment. And so we really want to know how many people is the state of Virginia testing every day. Um, at some point in the last three weeks, the state began to include the number of antibody tests and the number of total tests they were uh, reporting. And those tests have not been vetted by federal regulators yet. Um, they're not very reliable. And we also don't know what it means to have antibodies um, for COVID-19. We don't know how long that gives you immunity for. Um, and we don't know exactly to what level uh, you would get immunity from having antibodies. And so those numbers are not um, as useful to us as how many people have been formally diagnosed with COVID-19 and have it presently. Um, and so. And, and with the antibody is that, how, how do we as um, residents, how should we be thinking about antibodies or, or asking about antibodies? That's a good question. I asked the state epidemiologist Lillian Peak. Uh, you know, I said I, I went, myself went out and got an antibody test and it came back negative. But I wonder if it'd been positive. What that would mean for me? And she said I actually don't recommend people just go out and get an antibody test. Uh, I think people should talk to their doctors and see if that's something that they would even need because they're not reliable right now and are still in the process of being vetted. She said, I don't suggest people just go out and get that test. Okay. If you do get one and it comes back positive, um, she said, she suggests you take it to a doctor to see they might keep those numbers and eventually when we have more research that might tell you whether you are immune to COVID-19, but that's not something that we know right now. Well, I know reading the article and the, the parts that stuck out to me was that a lot of the experts just kept saying, we're not really sure where this information is coming from or how they'll proceed with this is unseen. I think that's beyond the science, beyond what is a diagnostic test and an antibody test. I think the, the really interesting thing about the story is just how many um, public officials uh, did not know that this was happening and how many had made a decision to uh, combine these two types of tests based on like kind of unusual arguments. So the governor said um, at his press conference last week that he only found out that the state was mixing the two types of tests after our story ran. Um, and I think for a lot of people, Northam is a doctor. He does understand um, 
testing and to some level he does understand the science behind some of the things we're talking about and so I think it was surprising for me to hear that um, the state's lab director uh, Denise Tony also did not know uh, the reason I found out about the story is because during a press conference with reporters she said she was pretty sure that the two tests were not mixed together and just for uncertainty um, made me go ahead and question them and so I think beyond the science, just knowing that um, at least some pretty high-ranking state officials were not aware of how the numbers were being mixed and how the data was being compiled, and then they were using that data to make decisions about reopening the state, um, I think I think is pretty concerning and I think is something that, um, that has since been corrected. So. And we saw that it's hit national news and Virginia is not the only state that seems to be not combining numbers this type of way. Um, are you following what any other states are doing across the country or what's happening there? Um, I'm less sure of the national picture, but I do know that in Arizona, uh, a few weeks back, maybe a month ago, um, state health officials came out and said um, we had been combining the two types of tests and they have thousands of antibody tests that were mixed into the general pool and that was pushing down what we call the positivity rate. It's like this number that we use to calculate how many people out there have COVID-19 among the people that we've tested and that number is pretty critical. Um, and we want it to be low but we don't want it to be artificially low and so officials in, in Arizona said we're gonna stop doing this, here's our actual um, positivity rate, and here's how many antibody tests we had um, included in our total count. And so it seems that some states that, at least two states now that have been doing this um, have stopped. I know that an expert at Johns Hopkins University said she suspected there are other states that are doing this, but I think it'll take reporting similar to that um, that we did in Virginia to kind of figure out how that's being done. And this positivity rate that you're speaking about, is this kind of what they keep talking about with the trends? That's just the word I know many people are like the trends, which seems so indefinite to me and to many people. Yeah, it is kind of wonky. Um, I think a, just a good way to, to understand it is positivity rate is just the number of positive tests in comparison to the number of total tests that we're doing. And that number in Virginia right now is about 15%. And so because we have limited testing, if 15% of the people we're testing are positive for COVID-19, and bear with me on this one, that means that we're not testing enough um, people who look healthy. That means we're mostly testing in places where people would have COVID-19, like maybe nursing homes and hospitals. We really want that positivity rate to be about 10%, because then that means we're testing such a wide array of people that only, you know, 10 in a hundred, 10 for every hundred are actually sick. And that, that gives us confidence that if there is an outbreak or if there are a lot of sick people in a particular spot, we will know about that case and we'll be able to contain it. So did the governor meet the indicators that he set for Virginia? Governor had said we want sufficient hospital capacity, and it is true that um, our hospitals do have um, open capacity right now to accommodate a surge of patients if that happened. In terms of where the hospitals are at, we're in a good place. We saw New York struggle with hospital capacity, and Virginia is just not there right now. Um, that could obviously change if cases spike, but that's why um, we're counting on people to continue 
um, distancing and um, being careful about who they interact with. Um, and then second is PPE, uh, and that's just the, the face masks and the gowns. Uh, hospitals are no longer reporting shortages of PPE, uh, which is a good thing. Um, but the Virginia Mercury, for example, has reported that nursing homes and other long-term care facilities and other congregate settings are still reporting shortages of PPE. So in that sense, Northam said, we need enough PPE to reopen. We do have it in hospitals, but it's still lacking in other places. And so um, that's kind of where we are on that. Um, and then the other one um, was testing. Uh, Northam said he wanted to see 10,000 people tested every day in Virginia. And the state is just not there right now. I know that the administration um, has appointed uh, a task force to work on this issue. And it's, I would say, probably one of their top priorities right now. Um, but for some reason, we're just not, we're just not at 10,000 people per day. Um, there's another measure out of um, Harvard that says we should be testing 2% of the state's population every 30 days and we're about 1.5%. And so by a couple of different measures, testing is just not where it needs to be. So, um, but that positivity rate is trending down. We were probably about 20% um, of people testing positive for COVID-19 among everyone we were testing and that number is, is going down and has been going down for about two weeks. So we were at about 20% a couple of weeks ago. Now we're at about 15%. And so we want to be at 10%. So we still have some ways to go, but um, it'll go down the more that we increase testing. And because testing is still this thing that we're wrangling with and wrestling with, um, yeah, we just need more tests for it to go down even, even more. So, Mel, is there anything else that the Race Capital listeners need to know about your reporting? Yeah, um, I think two things I would say. Um, one is the governor has called on all um, businesses to provide face masks to their workers. If your employer is not giving you a face mask, you should definitely reach out to your local employment agency. Um, the, the state is taking complaints for things like that. Um, your face mask also you should not be asked to wear one until the um, elastic breaks, you should really be getting a fresh face mask um, at least every other day, I think is the standard. And so um, just making sure that people's needs are being met is, is very important. And that's at least in the most recent order, one of the things that the governor has called for, which are just face coverings. Um, and the other thing I would say, um, the state wants to test more people who um, are asymptomatic. Uh, if you need a test, um, there are different places where you can go get one now, and um, some of them are pretty cost effective, and the state is also offering free tests for people who uh, can't afford them. Yeah. The other thing I would say is that if you uh, want to get tested for COVID-19, you should procure a test. Um, there are pretty cost efficient ways to do that. Uh, and the state is offering free tests for people who can't afford them. Um, there is a map on the health department's website. It's vdh.virginia.gov. Once you go to that page, there's going to be a link that says COVID-19. Then you, after that, you click on testing sites 
and you'll see this map that'll show you places around you that are testing. It might be a Rite Aid, um, it might be just like a state-sponsored drive-through event um, where you can get tested for free. Um, but I think just keeping tabs on that and getting a test, you don't have to have symptoms anymore to get tested at some of these places. And so, um, you know, even if you just have some like throat pain and you just want to make sure that would help you and it would help everyone if we could confirm that, that you were a positive case because it's the way that we're going to make sure that COVID-19 doesn't continue to spread. Great. Well, Mel, I really appreciate you um, sitting outside, taking this interview. I know people might be hearing the birds and the wind a little bit, but this is just the way that we're functioning <laughs> during this time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And how can folks support you? Uh, well, continue reading our content, richmond.com. It's the website for the Richmond Times Dispatch. And um, if you can, please subscribe. Our subscriptions are a pretty low cost option to make sure that local journalism continues to thrive. So you can follow me on Twitter. I'm pretty active there, especially when it comes to whatever the state government is doing. Um, my handle is at or underscore. Mel, thank you so much for your time and your reporting. We'll be keeping up and please come back anytime. Thanks. The same morning of May 14th, when the nation learned how Governor Northam was using juked-up numbers to validate the state's reopening, a coalition of advocates from across the Commonwealth held a press conference. Stay tuned for the demands led by Sean Perryman of Fairfax NAACP as the coalition explains why reopening was not a move to serve and protect Virginia's most vulnerable. I'm joined here by representatives from a diverse coalition of advocacy organizations from across the Commonwealth. This coalition includes New Virginia Majority, the Virginia Coalition of Latino Organizations, of course, the Fairfax NAACP, the Prince William County NAACP, Arlington County NAACP, the Loudoun County NAACP, CASA, uh, Care in Action, Virginia Student Power Network, and Richmond for All. We're here today to state our opposition to the May 15th reopening uh, in any part of Virginia. It will be devastating to the Black, Latinx, and immigrant communities, and ultimately every resident of the Commonwealth. Although regions like Northern Virginia have delayed their reopening, this ignores how people travel and work. A scattered approach is just as much a public health risk as a premature reopening anywhere in the Commonwealth. We demand that careful reconsideration of, of any notion of reopening Virginia until streamlined, aggressive testing and contract tracing operations are developed and in place so that new places, so that new uh, cases can be isolated. Furthermore, we demand an evidence-driven economic recovery plan rooted in public health, best practices that will protect all uh, Virginia families and essential workers. Now we're gonna provide you with an open letter at the end of this uh, press conference that lists all these demands but uh, we wanna put forth what we believe is needed to safely reopen for all Virginians, especially vulnerable communities that have been impacted by this pandemic. It includes uh, PPE for uh, all workplaces to be provided by employers for workers, regardless of workplace size and arrangement, including private homes and domestic workers. We're calling for uh, telework for anyone that can telework. And for those that have to go in, we're calling for increased protections and pay that includes hazard pay, strong workplace protections, uh, whistleblower and employer, retali employer retaliation protections, provisions for PPE, paid time off, and support for workers' uh, childcare. 
We have a list of other demands as well, but we think this is absolutely critical and necessary before we consider any reopening in any part of uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia. And I also uh, will need to mention that right now we are operating on data that we found out last night may not be accurate. Uh, there was an Atlantic story that said the governor is uh, essentially juking the stats to make uh, Virginia look like it's testing more than it already is. This is um, unconscionable and it's obviously a public health risk to us all. So we're here today united to say that Virginia needs to uh, put in protections in place before it sends anybody on the front lines to catch this virus and potentially endanger all of us uh, in the Commonwealth. So I'm gonna pass it on. We will have time for questions, but I am gonna pass it on to um, John List, the co-executive director of New Virginia Majority for a few words as well. Good morning, Sean. Thanks for pulling this together. Uh, I'm John List, co-executive director of New Virginia Majority a statewide racial justice and pro-democracy organization. New Virginia Majority stands with all the other organizations here today to support and defend the rights of working people and especially communities of color who are on the front lines of this crisis. Northern Virginia is not the only area in the state that should have a delayed opening. The whole state should be delayed. The mayor of Richmond has asked the governor to delay opening and officials in Accomack have also asked for a delay. Reopening does not mean that the threat of the virus no longer exists. It simply means that there is a hospital bed ready for you should you get sick. This is no consolation for uninsured or underinsured Virginians, or for those who have to choose between taking care of their health, paying their rent, or putting food on the table. Now I just reemphasize, Sean, your point. Uh, the governor, or at least the administration, has responded to concerns about the lack of testing by, by mixing anti-antiviral or viral testing with antibody testing, which is, appears to be the only state in the nation sort of mixing that data to make them look better. And then if you look at their uh, visualizations or their, their data on the health site, they've taken out uh, zip code by zip code data on testing and, uh, and, and positive testing. They've taken that data out in the last day. So I feel like in response to some of this stuff, we're, we're getting an administration that's that's, that's, that's skewing the data to make them look better. So access to testing, isolated housing, and treatment for all Virginians are essential prior to opening the state up. We need a state that is safe for all of us. Thank you. Thank you, John. Uh, I'm now gonna turn it to uh, Chelsea Higgs-Wise from Richmond for All. Chelsea, uh, are you on? Yes, I see you. Thanks so much, Sean. I do have a few words if uh, you all don't mind being patient with me. Um, my name is Chelsea Higgs-Wise from Richmond for All, the quickly growing multiracial organization for Richmonders looking for a progressive political home. In Richmond, COVID-19 data from the state health department shows that 16 out of the 18 people who have died from the virus in our city were African-American. That's an 89% rate despite black Richmonders accounting for only 48% of the city's population. I'm here to take note of when it comes to black and brown lives in Richmond, whether we live or die depends on the lens of Governor Ralph Northam and the lens of who benefits and who decides. The last few years leading up to 2019, Richmonders have been repeating, shouting, even the data, the science behind four centuries of racism being our true public health crisis. 
racism is the leading indicator for health inequities that result in a 20 year difference in life expectancy based on living in the white part of town versus the black part of Richmond. Speeches, forums, all in the name of Richmond being number two in the country for evictions while our city makes plans to demolish our most affordable housing in the city. In 2019, Governor Northam, he asked for forgiveness for insensitive pictures in the medical school yearbook and called for reconciliation dialogues while also forming commissions to reverse intentional policies that have oppressed working class black and brown Virginians since the start of our Commonwealth. Well, Governor Northam, right now I'm speaking to you. You are now choosing to utilize the familiar tools of your forefathers to spin the accountability and blame the same people you are choosing to ignore, stating we must formally request a delayed reopening per locality that we should work together as a region to request and to protect our most vulnerable. Governor Northam, just as you claim to be unaware of the harmful messaging of the minstrel shows of your past, you seem to have missed the lesson where surrounding counties of Richmond have participated in annexation and regionalism to further oppress Black lives from thriving here in the Commonwealth. Even in the most recent times in Richmond, we can't get a regional transportation system agreed upon for working class, carless families, but now it will be written in history as our fault if COVID ravages our neighborhoods. Who is deciding on the trends that best suit this decision and who will benefit from this decision to move forward without proper protections of our health, of not just our workers, but for the families they return home daily to care for? Who will benefit from sending our parents without proper childcare back to work? Are our parents not also Virginia workers? Will we be later labeled in the next generation as bad black and brown parents and neglectful because we weren't given a choice right now, much less a voice over the business class elite? Now, we as Richmond for All stand with the coalitions and with workers across the Commonwealth to lift the voices that are being erased in this remarkable moment in history by the North administration. We will not be the guinea pigs. And I question how much was truly learned last year on the tour of reconciliation that seemed to benefit the administration. And back then, but today, in a public health pandemic, your decision of who you're allowing to decide and who you're allowing to benefit is very clear. And black and brown lives ain't it. We are on the outside yelling in, excluded from this decision with Governor Ralph Northam. And in just six months, out of the 400 years since our bodies were trafficked here to Virginia shores to kickstart the economy, Black and brown Virginians are back in front of Virginia white leadership, but this time it's to Ralph Northam, forcing him to look at the mirror and see how he is repeating the history of his ancestors. So we demand that we not be banished to be the unprotected labor that once again drives our economy forward while, our po while the policies dig a place for black and brown lives, not six feet apart, but six feet underground. I'm Chelsea Hicks Wise of Richmond for All, and we're asking you to put the lives of people over the profits of Virginia business elites. Thank you. Thank you, Chelsea. Uh, that was a very powerful message. Um, and we are also joined in addition to the coalition members and leaders. Uh, we have people who are directly impacted that we wanted to uh, bring to the press. So I'm gonna turn this over now to Lourdes Rodriguez, if she's on the line. Lourdes puede empezar. Buenos días, mi nombre es Lourdes Rodríguez. Eh, soy de Honduras. 
eh, soy una madre de dos hijos, eh, trabajo en un golgin de limpieza. Eh, mi preocupación es mm, sobre eh, que ya van a abrir pues, eh, los condados. Eh, en mi persona yo no, pues, no me siento preparada ni segura eh, por esta epidemia. Eh, mi preocupación es regresar a mi trabajo. Claro que quiero regresar porque yo dependo de mi familia, de mis hijos, pero también tengo preocupación que no, es, no estamos preparados para ir a nuestros trabajos eh, porque todavía hay muchos casos del COVID-19. Eh, es una preocupación no solo de mi persona, yo sé que de todo el mundo porque nos sentimos en la inseguridad de que podemos contagiarnos y venir a contagiar a nuestra familia, a nuestros hogares. Eh, yo creo que eh, si es ya el tiempo, pues eh, podrían este, eh, alargar otro poquito más de tiempo, porque en primer lugar, pues eh, sería en vano lo que hemos estado haciendo, la protección, todos los métodos que hemos tenido de protegernos, no salir, quédate en casa. Y al abrir pues eh, el, el estado de Virginia, eh, creo que va a ser eh, el número de, de los infectados va a ser fatal. Porque viene otra epidemia, lo estamos viendo en los niños y viene ya el, el, el invierno, digamos. Y bueno, no hay, no hay, eh, no hay una, este, digamos, una, una cura para este virus porque no, no, se ha realiza, no se ha realizado una vacuna eficaz para este virus. Eh, si nos infectamos, pues vamos a una emergencia, una sala de emergencia a los hospitales, solo nos chequean y nos mandan hacia nuestra casa a encerrarnos a nuestro cuarto, a aislarlo de la familia, y creo que eso no es eh, re, eh, conveniente para nosotros los hispanos, eh, más en los hispanos, porque los casos que han habido eh, es más en, nuestro, en, nuestros, en nuestra comunidad. Eh, yo vivo aquí en el área de Chirilagua, aquí hay muchos infectados. Lamentablemente hay muchos infectados porque no tenemos la ayuda eh, adecuada. Eh, queremos irnos a hacer la prueba para ver si estamos al 100% sanos, saludables. Si, si uno no, no presenta ningún síntoma, no nos dan la ayuda para hacernos la prueba. Y nosotros queremos que, que hayan más oportunidades para hacernos la prueba y así tomar medidas más drásticas en nuestra persona. Y con respecto al trabajo, pues... Eh, yo no quisiera perder mi trabajo, claro que quiero ya ingresarme a mi trabajo, pero yo trabajo en una área de que hay mucha gente, sale, entra demasiada gente. Yo trabajo en un golgin, mi, mi trabajo es de estar limpiando, ando entre medio de ellos, ellos pues en, en estar haciendo ejercicio, ellos sudan, ese sudor pues varias veces me cae a mí, encima de mí, y es por eso que yo pues no me siento preparada para que este, abran todavía el estado. Eh, queremos también que los eh, dueños de, 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 de negocios 
pues nos acudan, los jefes que nos acudan a nosotros, las protecciones, por ejemplo, las mascarillas, guantes, para que nosotros podamos protegernos más y así pues no llegar a infectarnos ni llegar a infectar a nuestra familia, a nuestros hogares. Y también si llegamos a infectarnos, pues que nuestros jefes de trabajo nos puedan acceder el tiempo que estemos incapacitados con el pago, eh, pago de nuestros hijos, la cuidada de nuestros hijos. Eh, bueno, yo ya tengo dos meses que no estoy trabajando desde que el gobernador eh, dictó que tenían que cerrarse todos los negocios, gimnasio, restaurante, etcétera, hoteles. Eh, tengo ya dos meses, a mí no me han pagado. Y bueno, no tengo esperanza que me pague, porque me han dicho que no, que no hay pago. Pero yo he visto en las noticias que, bueno, eh, han habido ayuda para estos empresarios de pequeños negocios y porque a nosotros nos están negando el salario. Eh, esa es mi preocupación. Tengo que pagar renta, eh, eh, biles, comida y otros gastos que tenemos hacia mandarle a nuestros familiares a nuestros países. Eh, esa es mi, mi preocupación de que todavía no estamos preparados para que Virginia abra ya para ir a trabajar. Eh, sabemos que cuando digan ya está, ya está el, el eh, abierto, yo sé que todos vamos a salir, no los vamos a proteger como debemos de protegernos, no vamos a proteger a nuestros hijos. Eh, las escuelas, pues creo que todavía tampoco no están preparadas para que abran, eh, ya que pues los maestros en casa pues se están conectando con nuestros hijos para las tareas. Yo creo que eso es una gran ayuda para nosotros y también para ellos. Eh, esa es mi, mi inquietud y mi preocupación, que me siento que todavía no, no estamos preparados para que abran este, los condados, los negocios. Y bueno, estas es mis pocas palabras y espero pues que nos ayuden más a la comunidad eh, hispana, que tengamos todos los recursos necesarios. Necesitamos más ayuda para que nos puedan hacer la prueba del COVID. Eh, no es necesario tener los síntomas, sino que nos hagan la, este, la prueba para nosotras y toda nuestra familia, estar seguros que estamos sanos y así pues seguir las indicaciones, las protecciones que hemos, eh, por los momentos, hemos este, acudido a tenernos. Eh, si usted no va a hacer nada afuera, mejor no salga. Usted está protegiendo a usted mismo y está protegiendo a su familia. Los que están trabajando, pues lamentablemente, pues es obligatorio que tienen que salir, pero de igual tienen que protegerse. Como han tirado en las campañas, mejor quédate en casa, es más seguro. Gracias y que tengan un feliz día. Gracias por la organización que está haciendo este evento eh, para ayuda para todos nosotros. Eh, gracias, John. Gracias Evelyn, Ingrid, Margarita, gracias Maya, a todos los que están ahí organizando para que esto se lleve y que la gente mire y que tome en cuenta que esto no es un juego. Lamentablemente a mí no me ha pasado en mi familia, gracias a Dios, estamos sanos, pero eh, he visto en muchas familias, en muchas amistades que ya han perdido muchos familiares. ¿Por qué? Porque no estamos haciendo caso a tomar las medidas que tenemos que tomar 
lo agarramos como un juego y esto no es un juego. Empezamos ya, vamos a empezar otro tiempo más delicado y vienen otras enfermedades, ya lo estamos viendo en los niños. Eh, esa enfermedad como que se llama Kasawaki, algo así, eh, lamentablemente ahorita está atacando mucho a los niños. Por favor, familia, por favor, vecinos, todos los que nos están viendo, hagamos caso. Es cierto, necesitamos nuestro trabajo porque yo soy una, yo lo necesito. De él dependo, depende de mi familia. No quiero tampoco que me vayan a despedir, que tal vez abran ya y yo no me, me, me presente a trabajar. Pero sí necesito que por favor tomamos más precaución las medidas que tenemos que tomar, tanto como los jefes, por favor, que nos acudan a todos los materiales que tenemos que usar. Desinfectante, como se lo vuelvo a repetir, guante, mascarilla y todo. Para así, pues, eh, hacer nuestro trabajo al 100% y con seguridad que vamos a estar bien y va a estar bien nuestra familia. Muchas gracias, que Dios me los bendiga y que tengan un excelente día. Y siempre confiando en Dios, que Dios nos va a tener siempre con salud. We will now hear Lore's message translated in English. My name is uh, Lourdes. I'm from Honduras. <clears throat> I'm a mother of two boys. I work in Gold's Gym, uh, cleaning the gym. My concern is that if all the counties open, if the states open, um, personally, I don't feel safe with this pandemic. I'm concerned about returning to work. Of course, I want to work. I need to work for my family, for my kids. Um, but I'm just concerned we're not ready to go back. There's still a lot of COVID-19 cases, and this isn't just a personal concern, but everyone is feeling it. We're concerned about the safety, about getting sick and coming back and infecting our families, infecting our, our homes and our communities. Um, my request is that we have a little bit more time. I, I wouldn't want everything that we've been doing to be in vain. Um, we've been staying home, and if we go back, um, the numbers of infections are going to be fatal. So thinking about the kids and this upcoming winter, there's no cure for this virus. We haven't developed a vaccine yet. If we get sick, we go to the emergency room, they check us and they send us back to our homes. They have us quarantined in our rooms, but we're stuck with our families and, and this isn't a good remedy for us, especially for the Hispanic community. Um, here in Chirilagua, there are many infections and we don't have the adequate help that we need. We don't have enough tests to know if people are healthy. If we don't have symptoms, we can't get the test and we want more opportunities for testing. We want more drastic measures taken for our people with respect to um, working. You know, I, I don't wanna lose my work. I want to go back to work, but I work in an area where there's a lot of people coming and going. I work in Gold's Gym and I'm cleaning and people are exercising and sometimes I feel like the sweat is falling on me and, and I don't think that we're ready to open. The business owners, they need to take care of us. Our bosses need to provide protection for us if we're going to go back. We need masks and gloves so we can protect ourselves and not get sick and sick and not infect our families and our households. And if we get sick, our boss needs to give us paid time off so that we can get better. We need help with childcare. Um, it's been two months that I haven't been working. The governor wants to open gyms and restaurants and hotels. You know, it's been two months that I haven't been paid and I don't expect to get paid. You know, but I see on the news that businesses are getting help to stay open, but why isn't that money trickling down to our salaries? We have bills and we have rent to pay. 
Um, this is my worry that we're not ready for Virginia to open and go back to work. We know that when we open, everyone's gonna go out. Um, people are not going to be protected. Our kids won't be protected. You know, and I think about in the schools, you know, we're still not ready to open. The teachers are at home connecting with their kids and this has been a huge help for us and for them. Um, but this is my complaint and my worry. I feel we're still not ready to open in Virginia. These are just a few of my thoughts, um, and I hope that we can get more help for our community, the Hispanic community. We need more tests for COVID-19, regardless of whether or not someone is showing symptoms. We need to get tested. Um, we need to be able to, to check us and our families so that we can continue um, taking care of ourselves. Um, thank you to everyone on the call, and thank you to um, Evelyn and Ingris and Maya who helped me prepare. Um, you know, this isn't a game. I see some people treating this as a joke. They're not taking it seriously. This, this really is not a game. My family is good, um, thank God, we've been okay. But I hear more and more about how COVID-19 is affecting kids. So uh, a message to my community, please take care of yourselves. We do need to work, but we're not ready to go back. Um, we need more steps in place. We, we need more drastic measures. We need our bosses to provide protective equipment. Um, and yes, we do need to be able to go to work eventually, but most important is to take care of our family. So thank you everyone um, for your time and thank you for being here. Um, I have faith in God and um, let's be really safe about this. You're listening to Race Capital with me, Chelsea Higgs-Wise, on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Stay tuned for the rest of our episode on Virginia's reopening during COVID. Thank you, uh, Lourdes, and thank you, Mia, for the translation. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, Jessica Godoy, I believe, is on the line. Are you there, Jessica? Eh, buenos dias. Mi nombre es Jessica Godoy. Eh, vivo en el condado de Fairfax y soy miembro de Casa Virginia. Mi testimonio es el siguiente, um, ya que mi esposo dio positivo a la prueba del COVID y nosotros rentamos uh, uh, una habitación. Eh, son mis dos, uh, mis dos hijos, una bebé de cuatro meses y un niño de 11 años, el cual a él uh, al ir a, a sentirse enfermo, él fue a, a, a la clínica. Um, le pidieron que él tenía que aislarse. Él no pudo hacerlo ya que no tenía donde ir, uh, no hay aquí un servicio uh, de salud donde él pudiera ir a aislarse o algún lugar. Eh, tuvimos que convivir juntos uh, a pesar él de, de dar positivo. Eh, estaba él junto con nosotros y uh, él ha podido ir mejorando pero sí tuvimos que, que estar juntos con él, ya que uh, él tuvo que um, ir a la clínica y um, cubrir todo uh, lo que fue gastos y todo. Tuvimos que cubrirlo nosotros, eh, medicamentos, la prueba. 
eh, nosotros no contamos con un seguro médico. Eh, yo no pude hacerme prueba tampoco. Y a él al querer volver a, a trabajar, a él le piden que tienen que llevar un eh, prueba de que ya no tiene lo que es COVID y ya es otro gasto de nuevo y nosotros no contamos con ese dinero. No teníamos uh, para cubrir renta ya que él pues uh, no trabaja desde que se cerraron todos los trabajos. Uh, a él lo despidieron y luego no teníamos cómo cubrir tanto. Llamé al servicio del condado de Fairfax a ver si podían ayudarme con lo que era el pago de renta. Y no tuve ninguna solución. Eh, di todos mis datos, llené todo, todo papel que me pidieron. Eh, y mandé por correo electrónico eh, todo y no recibí respuesta. Eh, llamé también a ellos para ver si había algún sitio donde él pudiera ir y aislarse para pasar todo este proceso de cuarentena. Y me dijeron que ese servicio de salud no había aquí en este, eh, en este estado. Entonces, para nosotros ha sido bien difícil ir pasar, pasar por todo este proceso porque por la salud de mi esposo y ver la salud de mis hijos y mía. Yo eh, le pido a, a las personas de, uh, de aquí de, del condado que puedan eh, tener un servicio más mejor para lo que es la comunidad. Eh, un liderazgo mejor, ya que no contamos, digamos, con pruebas. Yo quise hacerme la prueba también y no, no tuve acceso a ella, solo pagar ya en una clínica aparte. Y creo que eso es parte de mis testimonios y con eso concluyo y le doy gracias a los miembros de de casa porque ellos han sido las únicas personas que han sustentado parte de nuestros alimentos ya que nosotros no podemos eh, salir fuera. Eh, mi esposo ha tenido que estar en reposo, nosotros también. No, mi hijo no ha podido eh, ni siquiera salir a, a traer su merienda, algo escolar ni nada por evitando eh, estar cerca de otras personas. Entonces, eh, eh, sí quisiera que pudiera haber más ayuda a lo que es aquí al, al condado y, y lo que es la oficina de servicios de, al, de la comunidad, que puedan tener pronto más respuestas más para las personas que llamamos ya que no nos están dando un buen servicio uh, y eso es todo. Muchas gracias. Tengan un buen día. Uh, my name is Jessica. I live in Fairfax. Um, I'm a member of Casa Virginia and my husband tested positive for COVID-19. 
we rent a room and we have two kids. We have a baby who's four months old um, and another kid who's 11 years old. And when my husband got sick, they requested that he isolate himself, but he didn't have anywhere to go to quarantine. So we had to continue to live together after he tested positive. Um, you know, we were living together and he was able to get better, but we still had to be together during that time. He had to go to the clinic um, for the testing and for everything, and he had to pay for it because we don't have health insurance. Um, they wanted him to return to work and they asked him to take a test to prove that he no longer had COVID-19, which was yet another expense for us. And, and we just don't have the money. We aren't able to pay rent right now. We don't have the means to pay for all of this. I called um, the community services in Fairfax to see if they could help me with rent, but they didn't have a solution for me. I filled out all the paperwork that they asked me to do. I gave them all of the information and I emailed it to them, but I haven't received a response. I also asked them if there was a place to go for my husband to isolate during quarantine. And they told me that there wasn't anything like this available. So it's been very difficult going through all of this. Um, as for the health of my husband and my kids, you know, I'm asking for better services from the county. I'm asking for better services and more help. Um, this is my testimony. Thank you to all the members of CASA because they've been the ones who are helping us get food since we can't leave the house. Um, my kid can't go outside to play. We're not allowed to, not allowed to be around other people. We need more help from the county and from the Office of Community Services. We need better answers for the people who call in for help because um, they're just not providing good services right now. So thank you for, for listening. And thank you, Mia, for providing that translation. Um, I'm going to open this up to questions, but just to put this all in context, we're all facing the greatest uh, public health crisis probably of our lifetimes. And we found out uh, as of last night that uh, reportedly the governor has been misleading us. Thanks again to Mel Lenore from RTD for reporting on this unreliable data. And manipulating public health data in the height of the greatest pandemic of our lifetime. We need uh, a coordinated response. We do not need each region to come to the governor and ask for a delay. If, this, if these many uh, local governments have to come there, that means we have a problem that's large scale and widespread. And what we are facing is going off a cliff by reopening too early. We're calling for a delay to any reopening, but more importantly, we're calling for support to those who need it and for the vulnerable communities uh, being ravaged by this virus. Up next, we invited Dr. Julian Hader because we wouldn't be race capital without clearing up our historic lens to remind us that just because it's current doesn't mean it's new. Dr. Julian Hader from the Leadership School of University of Richmond, Associate Professor and Historian. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. I just wanted to invite you back to the show uh, today because I knew that you could offer some really great historical insight to what is still continuing on today. So, you know, if you, I think we have a tendency to uh, think about segregation, the historical legacy of it in the most benign ways, right? Um, we reduce it to, you know, segregated lunch counters or public accommodations, but um, the kind of epidemiological implications of manufactured black poverty have been going on for quite some time. Um, you know, sure, African-Americans had their own things during Jim Crow, but the neighborhoods were sick, man. Um, 
black people were dying from diseases in the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s that had all but had been eradicated from the white from white communities. Um, very very few neighborhoods had ample running water. Uh, people were still going to the bathroom outside in outhouses in the 1950s and 60s. These neighborhoods were slow to get the type of public service deliverables that can make them healthy. Um, and I think there, that carries on to the twilight of the 20th century in different ways. And I think what COVID has done is, in effect, put on display all of our brokenness, right? Um, there's that old saying, right? When white people get sick, black people get pneumonia. Uh, it couldn't be more true now. And it's in large part because we failed to address these under, underlying issues that have um, characterized African-American communities uh, for far too long. And um, it is hard now, given what's going on, to look away uh, from the types of sicknesses that have afflicted African-American communities for the last 50 to 60 years. And it's not just about pre-existing conditions. It's about African-Americans occupying jobs um, that make it more likely for them to be exposed to this disease. Many of them live in multi-generational households i.e. you have people working in uh, vulnerable capacities that are then coming home to people who are in their 60s and their 70s. Then you throw on top of that pre-existing conditions, but then you also throw the historical legacy of residential segregation. And what you have, in effect, is a recipe for utter disaster. So it's not just about poor health, right? There are plenty of white Americans and Americans of other colors who are in bad shape. It's not just about bad shape. It's about all of these factors that have contributed to the likelihood of African-Americans being affected by this disease more acutely uh, than their counterparts. And you cannot, we, uh, we can't have an honest discussion about what's going on without taking the historical context into account. Exactly. And we had on Mel Lenore a little bit earlier, who was talking about testing. How, yeah. how do you see this lens of the historical context and that the testing and the reopening the discussions right now? I mean, you know who's going to get access to tests and who won't get access to tests. And that's just shockingly predictable stuff that's going down with this. I mean, you could have, you, you don't have to be a soothsayer to recognize what is, you know, if, sometimes the past is prologue. You could pretty much anticipate how this was going to shake out. I think it's more likely that um, the, there are class-based implications, who gets tested and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. and who has access to proper medical care. Like I said, you know, I think all of our brokenness is on display. I keep right. saying that um, in large part because we don't have a plan, right? So, the plan is to go, back to, to go back to the status quo, man. That's not a plan, right? Right. That's just a return, a return to normalcy. How do you return to normalcy during a, excuse my, during a goddamn pandemic? Excuse my language, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm, I'm saying something patently obvious. There is no plan, Right. Right. The plan is to just go back to the way things were. Like, how do we do that? Right. 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 And of course, then when we start talking about going back to us to normalcy, when we start talking about going back to status quo, then again we have people who are going to be exposed to this more frequently. I mean, who delivers the mail? Who's driving the buses? Who's working as essential workers in the city of Richmond? Mm -hmm. Is African Americans generally and, and Latinos, right? Right. And these are the folks who are on the front lines and to try to regenerate the economy. They are literally sacrificing um, their health, their health to go out here and do these things. And I don't think we're being realistic, even if the city of Richmond stays shut. There are still people who have color who are in harm's way, right? right? And they were uh, so again, right? So this, the counties which 
again, is shockingly predictable. The counties will open up, the city will stay closed. But even though the city is still closed, African Americans are still deeply vulnerable to this to this disease. A large part because they're essential workers. Right. So, Dr. Hader, a couple things I, I'm hearing you say is, number one, that this is predictable. Sure. Who couldn't, who, who's paying attention, couldn't anticipate that this was going to shake out on partisan lines, on racial lines, on all of these wedge factors and divisive issues that saturate American politics is exactly how it was going to shake out. More specifically to our area, on large part because of city-county independence, you could pretty much assume, again, with shocking predictability, that the counties were going to have a different strategy than the city, even though we're part of the same metropolitan area. It's bananas, man. Right, right. There's, there's, there's no communal strategy to defeat this in large part because everybody's arguing about truth, mm. about science, about poverty. This, I, I, I keep saying this to everybody. I'm like, you know, I, I hate this. I don't want to sound like, you don't have to be a genius. To write. I saw it coming. Right. I knew it was going to happen. And, um, you know, I mean, if Richard Nixon would have had Fox News, he would have never left office. Ooh. Right. And um, just look what's going on yeah. out here right now. It's 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 unfortunate that this is where we're at. I myself used to say Americans weren't as divided as we like to, to think we are. And I think COVID has proven that I was dead wrong. Mm. Um and I think the city-county divide that's going on in this area is testament to the fact that we just don't have a strategy to deal with this in any kind of way that will resemble community. With, with moving forward with no real change in plan, people are yeah. saying that we have to because we have to save the economy. America, you know what it means? It means something that's, I think, patently obvious is that America is a business and it always has been. Um, in fact, we sold my ancestors on the free market. And I'm serious. I know that sounds cynical, man. Um, but that's all that matters is the economy. And it's like there have got to be other rubrics to measure a community other than, um, you know, financial stability. It means we lack imagination when, when it comes to thinking about how we move forward. Capitalism can't be the answer to everything. Wow. It's not dogma. It's, it, it's, it's doctrine. And I think what we're, we're thinking in many ways is, of course, People need jobs. Of course, people need to go back to work. But that's only a strategy if there aren't other devices to get people, to, sh to shield people from vulnerability. And when you live in a country with deep-seated fear of centralized power, very predictable that we would look to the economy to save us, of the economy that in many ways has gotten in this mess. Yeah, yeah, and it absolutely has. And I appreciate you speaking a little bit about the lack of imagination and that we do not actually have to follow the same pathway forward. We're choosing to do this. Our leaders are choosing That's to right. do this. This is a choice. Right. Right. And we're making a choice. And looking at nationwide and looking at the Commonwealth of Virginia, what I see is Virginia is following suit with a lot of other states. You mentioned partisan lines that look like Republican led governors are following suit of what Virginia is doing. Come on, Chelsea. Who do you think is in Ralph Northam's here right now? Right. Deep pockets. That's who. Right. right? Virginia's number I mean, one. Is, yeah. It's, it's like Diet K Street in Washington. The lobbyists have, there are these invisible actors in politics. Just because you can't see them doesn't mean that they're not there. Right. And they are applying pressure on elected officials to, to sew up the bottom line. 
right? Right. I mean, you see this throughout the United States of America, right? You see, I mean, take the Midwest. I'm going to go off on a tangent, just bear with me. Go ahead. You take the Midwest, for instance, the breadbasket of America um, that essentially built itself up through government subsidies, right? It was largely a democratic region of the United States. With the privatization of big agriculture, is it any mistake then that these private industries move into this area and begin to push a particular type of politics that moves these places toward, conserv- toward conservatives? There's a direct correlation between big business applying pressure on the government to, to, to fulfill their objectives, right? Um, and I think it's there's a historical continuity, particularly in a place like Virginia with this, a place that was essentially run by oligarchies, first to defend the slave system and then next Jim Crow. Um, these people have exerted a, a, a disproportionate amount of power and influence on politics since this place has been around. Virginia bought its independence with slave labor and it defended um, right the, the continuation of tobacco production through Jim Crow by, by rigging up a government of a handful of elected individuals. I don't know why everybody's so surprised, right? This is how it is, right? This is how it's always been. And <laughs> so oh gosh. That, that, that these people are exerting power or influence over our elected officials is not surprising all, um, at all. And because um, that's what we care about, right? Is other people's money. And African-Americans and people of color have always been vulnerable when it comes to to defending other people's financial interests. So I think this is some, uh, what I would call predictable continuity in the way that this Commonwealth has decided to uh, address this strategy that that speaks in many ways, well, it belies the democracy that we say we are, but speaks very directly to the economic interests that have always been centered in this place's identity. Well, Dr. Julian Hader, I don't know what else there is to say. I would just say that we need to think very intently upon how history is shape the strategies we're going to devise in the future without a firm understanding of it in that historical context, it's very likely that these people will continue to move on in the manner that they've always moved on. And and if that is the case, we're in trouble. And I mentioned you were a historian. Yeah, I wrote a book about Richmond called The Dream is Lost. It's about voting uh, that speaks in some ways to this. There's some actual epidemiological uh, uh, data in that book that might be of use to people who are interested in looking at the continuity of African-American sickness. Um, but there are all kinds of books to read that it gets you closer to how we got to now. Brent Tarter's book about oligarchy is a, is a good one. J. Douglas Smith's book about managing white supremacy. Right? I think we leapfrog a lot in the Commonwealth to get back to slavery to try to explain what's wrong with this area. Um, but and, and, and Which isn't to say that it hasn't shaped who we are, but if you really want to understand how we got to now, you cannot do that without walking through the fire of Jim Crow segregation and figuring it out because it's had a lot more um, concrete implications to what's going on now than slavery does. And I think there's a lot of good literature on that around here that people should peer at. Um, and then I think it will enlighten them, to say the least, and hopefully uh, inspire them to action at best. Well, that does it for this week's rendition of Virginia's Predictable Continuity. You're listening to Raise Capital right here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, and we'll catch you next week. Hey.